today. Jeremy is the pastor today with a slightly green tint. He is green with envy. He's been dodging landmines in Corinthians for weeks and weeks. He's been, he has spoken about tongues and spiritual gifts. And then there was that big one last week. And I get this passage. Okay. So our focus this week has been on missions. It's been missions conference week. We've heard testimonies and stories from those that we support is primarily about one thing, the gospel, what the gospel does, what it has done, what it is doing. And our purpose in missions is simple, move the gospel forward, more people to lost people. But there's something funny about this passage I want you to notice. Well, and the New Testament as a whole, it's full of the gospel. It's full of giving the gospel. Christ crucified, buried, risen again. And while the gospel is for the lost, what's remarkable is that in these letters is who they're written to. There's no letter that's titled to the lost souls in Egypt, to the lost souls in Spain, Rome, wherever. These letters filled with the gospel were written to believers, to the church. The gospel was being taught repeatedly to Christians, to churches who were already reached and who were already supposed to be spreading the gospel, who were already supposed to be doing missions and living it themselves. It's, it's significant because it indicates that the gospel is still beneficial to those who had already received it. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would have your hand on the preaching of your word today, that it would be handled faithfully and received correctly. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul's telling them, in the middle of this letter to a church, by the way, I'm going to remind you, remember the gospel. Well, that means we have to stop. We have to say, so what is the gospel? We throw around these Christian-y words, gospel and saved, and 
if you sit in church very much, your brain will turn off because you expect a guy to be standing in the pulpit reading from the Bible to be saying Christian-y words. So sometimes we have to stop and we have to define what is the gospel? What does saved mean? So I Googled it. <laughs> Faithful research. I looked up one-liners. I found a few. Um, one said, the gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins, rose again, eternally triumphant over all his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. Another said, as far as depth, the gospel has been described as a pool in which a toddler can wade and yet an elephant can swim. And it is both simple enough to tell a child, profound enough for the greatest minds to explore. And as it says in First Peter, even the angels never tire of looking into it. The gospel is, it's news, literally good news. It's a headline. It's the headline to planet Earth that your biggest problem has been resolved as a gift if you accept the gift. To any who would realize and acknowledge that they deserve God's just punishment, it's a relief. It's full payment of an impossible death that also comes with an incalculable inheritance. It's freedom from guilt, hope for life, and not just this temporary life, but hope for that uncertain, scary, unknown, unreported from silence that comes after. And honestly, gospel is the only thing that makes any sense of the world, the only thing that makes any sense of life. So you see, God gave us life. He gave us eternal existence. He gave it to us out of his perfect completeness. And we chose and we continue to choose to defy him from the first sin to the most recent sin that you committed this morning while you were trying to find your kid's shoes. That's a little personal, but <laughs> what humans do essentially is try to use her and try to be their own God. All the way back to the garden, what was the line? You shall be like the most high God. And sadly, what we find out is that frail humans make pathetic gods. And every evil, every sadness, every sickness, and death itself is in the world because of sin. And because of our sin, our slap in the face to this giver of all things good, there must be a punishment. Especially if, if God is truly just, if God is truly good and right, then there must be a punishment for this. And then human sin in the face of this perfect eternal God deserve a punishment equal to the crime, an eternal punishment. So that is the debt owed to God. And what the gospel tells us is that God himself paid it when Jesus died on the cross. That's why the Bible calls him both just and the justifier. He's both the judge that said, you fall way short, you have committed the crime, and he is also the one that says, I will take care of it. I will make it right. And then not only does he pay the penalty, but he adopts the criminal as well. Makes him an heir. So then, that's the gospel. Then to be saved doesn't just necessarily mean that you're safe from 
the devil or from danger or from evil. Primarily, according to that gospel, what being saved means, you're saved from God's perfect righteous wrath. Being saved, you're saved from God's judgment, from God's holiness and perfection. If that's what the gospel is, then what's this church like Corinth? What's, what's it supposed to be? If that's what the gospel is, then a church is supposed to be a group of people who've accepted this gift. Their identity and they are united in this message. Otherwise, the unity of this group is absolutely meaningless if it's not centered around this gospel. Centered basically around three truths. One, that we needed saved. Two, they accepted the gospel as true. And three, that they are actually changed by this gospel. It sounds simple, but if you lose any one of those, your church becomes something else. If your church is not made up of people who realize they needed saved, people who accepted this gospel as true, and people that are changed by this gospel, you've got a problem going on in your church. And Paul is writing to this, this church. The Corinthian church was a mess. They, um, they had uh, divisions. They accepted sexual sin as normal. They were suing each other. There was gluttony in the church. And Paul is writing them the remedy for this, for this out-of-order church. He tells them, remember the gospel. If you look in verse 3 through 4, it says, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, so he gives him the brief gospel, but before that he says, I would remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, you've received, in which you stand. So there's his first reason. Why remember the gospel? Well, you stand in it. That's kind of a big deal. This is kind of your basis. It's the very ground you stand on. So in Corinth, before the gospel, there was nothing. There wasn't a church in Corinth. There were no gifts, no Lord's Supper. They didn't know Christ. They weren't meeting. They probably didn't know each other. And this whole thing that they were currently corrupting, it didn't exist. The message of gospel was the beginning of, of this thing that Paul was trying to firm up. And he wants to remind him of the reason that they're there in the first place, why they even exist. The gospel was what create, created this community. In our day and age, we've seen a lot of denominations that at one time or another would have preached the gospel of salvation to sinners. And we've watched as they've become something else entirely. Certain branches of the Presbyterians have done this, many non-denominationals. Uh, what we're watching the Methodists go through in even the Pope seems to be giving up his papal authority over popular opinion on cultural issues that they used to stand on. And apparently pleading with people to come to freedom from sin and condemnation is just too unloving. And calling truth alternative apparently is. What this shift primarily is, is forgetting the gospel. If you want to boil it down, it's forgetting the gospel. So having a church without the gospel that forgets the gospel 
it's like like having a baseball team that only plays checkers. You're not really a baseball team. You you just play checkers. It's like a it's like a doctor goes in and he sets up a hospital. He says, "Okay, I, I've given you equipment, I've given you staff, you've got surgeons, you've got doctors, you've got treatment facilities. Go heal people. Go do what you do. Let's let's get this done." You know. He leaves and he comes back later and he finds out that they're printing T-shirts with the hospital's name on it and the ORs and the ambulances are being used as delivery trucks. What are you doing? Well, we're a hospital. No, you're not. You're not a hospital. You're not doing anything hospital. Yeah, it's on the T-shirt. It says hospital. We're a hospital. Nobody's being cured. Nobody's being helped. Nobody's being healed. You're not a hospital. You're not doing what a hospital does. You've forgotten the main thing about being a hospital. It's, it's like a shelter that was built to keep a bunch of people safe from an enemy without. Imagine a bunker in the mountains. And they build the bunker and they put secure doors on it and everything you need. You come back and the doors are thrown open so you can get some ventilation and they're playing loud music and there's a TV antenna sticking up and somebody's burning hamburgers out the back door and you can see the smoke for... 30 miles and say, you're a shelter. What, what are you doing? You're supposed to be keeping people safe. It messes the context up. It messes the function up. You were built to keep people from the danger without. When Paul says, remember to stand, remember the gospel because you stand in it, he's saying the church has no stability without the gospel, no purpose for existence, no reason to rejoice or feel secure, even connected to God. A church that forgets the gospel, it's not of Christ. And to be perfectly blunt, it's not a church. Then his next reason is, remember the gospel because it is saving you. The gospel is what told you that you were in danger in the first place. The reality of your lostness is the first thing that drove you to Christ. It says, I told you of first importance. You accepted this gospel message to escape the condemnation of sin. He told them earlier in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Being saved, it is saving you. So you see this active tense there. Gospel is saving you because if it's real in your life, then it is the driving, the driving force behind your sanctification. The plain and simple gospel. It's not some new fancy thing that I learned that's made me change. It's still just the gospel. You getting away from sin and becoming more like Christ. So the world widely accepts that Christians are supposed to be good people. Now, whether they are themselves or the people they run with or not, if they see a Christian that's not a good person, for some reason, automatically, you're a hypocrite. So it's implied... Christians are supposed to be good people. The gospel of Christ is what is supposed to initiate that, what's supposed to do that. If, anything, if it's anything else that causes you to be more Christ-like, to be better, then your morality is eternally worthless to you. If you're saved, here's what you did. You were led by the Holy Spirit to repent and turn away from your sins, to leave the old you, and then you produced fruit. 
we see whenever he uses this, you are being saved. We see that God's salvation is both effective and it's progressive. It doesn't quit working. Acts 26.20 says, uh, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that you should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3.8 and both Luke 3.8 say, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. It's a very telling statement. Fruit of salvation, fruit of the Spirit, a love for others and a love for Christ, but more than anything, a change from what you were. This is the proof that the gospel is at work in you, that you are being saved by the gospel. And if you lack this fruit, we see that ominous last line there at the end of verse 2. Unless you believe in vain. Believing in vain, word vain there is empty, an empty belief, meaningless Christianity. Just a title, just printed on a t-shirt, as it were, that changes nothing and does nothing, produces no consistency, does nothing long-term in you. He says that this gospel of a risen Christ is your stability, it is your salvation, if it is not proven in you to be empty and a worthless faith, a fake faith. So this person would produce no fruit, would produce no fruit, most likely will fall away. No growth, no significant consistent change, no dedication to the church. Like those earlier in Corinthians who were causing division, living openly in sexual sin, suing each other, drunkenness, living unchanged. No difference. This person needs to be saved, in essence. He needs the gospel. And then the rest of the passage says it, you stand in it, you're saved by it, you're sure of it. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest treatment of resurrection in the Bible. Jeremy will get into the rest of it last week. But here he begins to talk about the resurrection. Here attached to remember the gospel, and then he jumps into resurrection. Not only has this gospel saved you, but you have the testimony of a living Jesus. This passage, like we said, it's, it's the introduction to resurrection. So... Let's stop and think a little bit about the week of the crucifixion. A lot of people saw him die. Everyone in the country heard about it. But the fact that he could beat death is where the depth of his salvation set in. Things changed, even, even in, his, in his disciples' mind, to his followers. I think it was totally believable to them before that he could be killed. Because everyone died and everyone was in danger. Do you remember Peter saying, oh, that's not going to happen to you. I'll die before that happens to you. I'll, don't worry, Jesus. I'll jump up and I'll take care of you. And even when they came for him, he jumped up and he cut off a guard's ear. It's like, you're our Messiah. You're our Savior. But don't worry, buddy. I'll take care of you. I've got you. And then he died. But then 
to come out of death on top, went through the ultimate danger. It carried a completely different meaning. It would have changed everything that they ever heard him say. Everything would have clicked that hadn't clicked before. So you think about it from their Israelite perspective, looking for their Messiah. He says, I've come to save you. Save you. Great. Good deal. Awesome. Then that person dies. Bummer. That's a big bummer. Everything just fell apart. But then that person comes out of death saying, it's go time. Now think about the salvation they were looking like, they were looking for. Like, oh, he meant he was going to save us, save us. We're not talking about this temporary national political get the Hebrews back on top. He just whipped death. He meant something totally different. This is a different depth of salvation we're talking. This is a different level of safety and rescue. We're not talking about being pulled out of the ocean by a Coast Guard helicopter in the storm and being set on one of their ships. You're safe. The sea's rough, but you're safe. We're talking about the guy that's controlling the storm level of safe. That's why Paul leans so heavily on the proof of Christ's resurrection here instead of laboring over miracles and stuff like that. Because the defeating of death showed something completely different about what he was doing. It would have shined an entirely new and ultimate life, an ultimate light on what his ministry was in the first place. He says, you've got the testimony of several things. You're sure of it because you have the testimony, first of all, of Scripture. So before any, let's look at verse 3 through through 5 first. For I delivered you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve and to a whole bunch of people. Before any other testimony is valid, the Scriptures validated the work of the Gospel centuries earlier. God told them over and over again, I'm doing something. I'm at work. From Genesis on, from the very beginning, we have the Word of God. I'm doing something. I'm at work. It's no surprise that if we have a perfect God that is working out His perfect glory in creation through redemption and through the Gospel, it's no big thing that God has communicated it to us in the Bible. It's no big thing that that he would validate it, and we have the validation in the Scriptures. And then they've got the testimony of the apostles and the church. The apostles' testimony is significant. They saw Jesus. Now, they could have said they saw Jesus just to keep their racket going, but if you look at what their racket was, that doesn't make sense because they were all currently being persecuted and killed for it. Now, a lot of people will die for what they believe. A lot of people will die for a lie if they believe a lie. But ain't nobody going to die for what they know is a lie. The apostles saw firsthand that Jesus actually was resurrected, actually walked around in front of them, and virtually every single one of them died a horrible death for for the gospel. If they'd been running after a lie, after a prosperity gospel, just to kind of keep their name on top, that's not how that would have gone. 
So you've got the testimony of the apostles. Then you've got the testimony of the church. He says more than 500 at a time. Now that's significant. And I've noticed it in missions conference week. Because you have missionaries come through and everybody starts talking. So I've been to this church, this church, I know this person. Pretty soon you're like, you know people, the same people all over the country. And it becomes a pretty small world. This is significant because they were in Corinth. This happened in Israel. But they still would have had connections to these people. More than 500 at one time. They would have known some of these people by now. Yeah, my cousin was there. My cousin knows a guy, and I believe what he said. He saw it happen. So the point is, is that there was plenty of proof that this guy, that everybody knew about him dying, there was plenty of proof that this guy was up walking around alive. And then he's got the testimony of Paul himself. We see that down in verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Paul had been turned from a persecutor of probably those 500 people, those apostles, a persecutor of the people that he was citing as testimony to the most changed believer, to the one who was working the hardest for this message that he was zealously, righteously trying to stamp out. This is a testimony to the power of salvation. And you see there, he talked earlier about if he did not believe in vain. His faith was not in vain. This is what the opposite looks like. He went to work. It changed him. It started to do something in him. It was alive. It changed him drastically. Sometimes the most potent proof of the gospel is in people that you've seen change 180 degrees. And it's all the more striking when it's you. You've got your own testimony. It's like David said the other night. Tell your testimony. Nobody's going to argue with you over your testimony. Say, this is what happened to me. We're called witnesses in the Bible. A witness doesn't show up and he's not the judge and he's not the lawyer. He's not the, he's not the defendant. He just, this is what I saw. This is what happened to me. And I can tell you I'm different. There's the proof in me. Your appetites change. Your attitudes change in ways that you can't explain. And if you do not know what I'm talking about, if you're not standing in or being saved by this gospel, then you need it. Because the gospel will bear fruit. It's not inert. If it's inert with you, in you, that's not the gospel. That's you. Remember the gospel. Remembering versus forgetting. Now, like I said earlier, we've seen churches forget the gospel. When the gospel begins to seem unloving or unacceptable, exclusive and harsh to our culture. You know, we feel like rather we need to make people feel good about their condition. Maybe that's a better thing for a church to do. And then so based merely on the emotion of the hearer, God's word and the gospel that preaches salvation to a sinner gets considered irrelevant. 
old. We evolve out of it. So forgetting the gospel leads to a lack of fruit, first of all. Leads to error, secondly. And the most scary, it leads to false security. The church that forgets the gospel and it replaces it with its creed or its quadrilateral or a tradition that it holds as equal to the scripture, then it becomes like a shelter that doesn't protect, a hospital that doesn't treat, it's like a sign on a dark road that's faded and you can't see where you're supposed to be going or what it is. It becomes like a farm that doesn't produce anything. We've begun to see churches champion other things over the gospel. And the main things that the churches champion is the human. So I did a little bit more Googling and I started looking up what are other oh, faith statements or purpose statements in other ministries and churches that we see emerge. And this one sounds nice. There's no greater feeling. Now, this is big letters right on the front page of the website. There's no greater feeling than being able to help people rise higher and overcome something and feel better about themselves. You too shall be like the most high God. Then I found the core values of progressive Christianity. By calling ourselves progressive Christians, we mean that we are Christians who believe that following the way and teachings of Jesus can lead to experiencing sacredness, wholeness, and unity of all life, even as we recognize that the Spirit moves, I don't know what Spirit, but the Spirit moves in beneficial ways in many faith traditions. We are Christians who seek community that is inclusive of all people, honoring differences in theological perspective, age, race, sexual orientation, gender identity, expression, class, or ability. Christians who embrace the insights of contemporary science and strive to protect the earth and ensure its integrity and sustainability. And Christians who commit to a path of lifelong learning, believing there is more value in questioning than in absolutes. You too can be like the Most High God. Just take and eat. So the error, one of the many errors, is that there's really no sin to be saved from. And according to this, we accept that Jesus died to save us from sin as just an alternative. That's where that word save becomes bigger and gets more important. You get the false security. You're not really in need of salvation. You're fine. You're okay. You'll just drown a little bit. Your wickedness isn't what carrying, carrying you down. You don't need safe from sin. You don't need to be safe. You're fine. When acceptance becomes acceptance of sin, it is the most unloving and the most hateful thing in the world. You're fine dying. It's okay. Who was it? The uh, pen and teller. I forget which one it was. He's an atheist. And there's an interview of him saying, 
I don't mind somebody proselytizing. If you really believe someone's dying and going to hell and you don't try to save me, you're the most unloving and hateful person in the world. If you believe it, you'd better say something about it or you are the cruelest individual in the world. That's what this false security brings you. You don't need saved. You're fine. You're fine. And then there's no fruit. Where the gospel is forgotten, there's, there's error, false security, and no fruit. People are not repenting of their sins to come to know Christ. Bottom line. Jesus isn't proclaimed what the original gospel was, the reason that the church was built, the reason there's a hospital, there's a shelter, there's a, is forgotten. Nobody gets healed, nobody gets cured, nobody's kept safe. There is no fruit. Remember the gospel. Remembering. It'll straighten out your thinking. Remembering the gospel. It'll properly place God in your life. It'll guide your perspective on the world and yourself. Through the gospel is the clearest way that God has decided to be seen by humans. Remember the gospel, it's the main thing. It'll order your life. More than anything, remember that you serve a risen Savior. And hopefully you are proof of that. Um, Vicky has picked the song, What He's Done, kind of as the theme of the missions conference. And we need to remember that, that this is what he is doing. The gospel is what God is doing. It is what he created the earth to do. The gospel is the thing which harvests the most glory for God in all possible versions of human existence. Otherwise, an all-powerful God wouldn't be doing it. It's the lens through which we see God is, see who God is the clearest, in which we see ourselves and each other the most accurately. Remember what Jesus said? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, then you know who God is and what God is about. The gospel of God being both the just and the justifier is the clearest picture that a human can get of God the Creator. We stagger through our lives reacting to situations and seeking remedies to improve our temporary problems. We begin to see God as just this spiritual emotional tool instead of the ultimate guide and authority of all things who's doing something very specific. He's bringing his creation to him. That's significant because something, someone that is perfect is reconciling the imperfect in order to have perfect relationship with him. Remember the gospel. It will order your life. That is probably the most missions sermon <laughs> to preach. Because that is what we are to do here. That is what the church is supposed to do. You are supposed to be, supposed to be so drastically changed by the gospel that we push it out, that we send others, that we go. These missionaries that we see and that we've talked to, they don't consider themselves having given anything up. So if God is doing this work and God's going to do his work anyway, what's the point in them? A missionary is someone who's so changed by the gospel. I said, if God's going to do it, I'm going to be there to do it. I'm going to be there to watch it happen. 
I'm going to be there to be used by it. I want that front row seat, like the little kid that sits in front of the big TV and say, get back, you're burning your eyes, which never really happened for some reason. That's a missionary. I want to see God do what he's doing. I'm going to go get, give the gospel. I want to watch the gospel change people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this week. I thank you for what you're doing at Liberty. I thank you for what you're doing at Missions. I thank you for what you do with the gospel. I ask what is already answered and will be answered, that you will harvest every godly grain of glory for yourself, that you you will call all to you, that your own would come to know you. And for our missionaries, as we've prayed for them many times this week, Our main prayer now is that you would prepare the hearts where they're going, that you would give them fruit, that you would be God and do what you do. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand together and let's sing what he's done.